Coming to you direct from our super secret studio. Hello, this is Washington for Beautiful People on Deep State Radio. We're on iTunes now, so you can find us there. Listen, rate us, and leave me a review if it's nice. If it's not, you don't have to. <laughs> and I'm your host, Emily Brandwin, CIA spy girl on Twitter. And today is a super, super special stealthy episode. And I am so excited. I'm actually taping from the East Coast, not the West Coast, in the Comedy Cellar studio. And I'm going to use the word super again, even though it's kind of annoying. But I'm super excited because I'm joined by one of my favorite ex-spies and one of my favorite musical theater aficionados. <laughs> There's a lot to live up to. And they also happen to have executive produced and created one of my favorite, actually my favorite, and I've gone on record saying this, my favorite espionage-themed show, The Americans. It's Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields. Hi, guys. Hey. Hey. How are you? It's funny. People ask me all the time, and I'm sure they ask you, too, uh, Joe, like, what is, you know, your favorite CIA show or spy show? And I always say your show. I always say The Americans. That's very nice. That's very nice. You know, it was very... uh, concerned always about how the uh, CIA and ex-CIA audience would respond to it because I figured if they gave me a hard time or didn't really like it, I somehow had failed in certain <laughs> key respects. So, so the response I've gotten has been great and very nice. It's Well, I think part of it's the reason I like the show and I think other people responded so well to it. It's that you've embodied it with so much little nuance and little nuggets. I remember early on she was uh, Carrie and what I just forgot, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Thank you. It's okay. It's been a while. I was. I'm going by a different alias, <laughs> and she's burning one of her notes. But she did it in the way that you learned how to burn an old note, like you do an accordion plate and you do the fire. And I thought, I love the show. It was that little <laughs> nugget, and I just thought it was genius. You know, that was back in the early days, and I. I just thought, I don't think the PRB, the Publication Review Board, that you know decides what you can and can't say and print and write and put on television and everything. I thought they, they won't approve this. I mean, this is a secret piece of tradecraft, but I really want to do it. Why don't I just send it in? And they didn't care at all. That's it was one amazing. of the great delights of the show. And then you remember, Joel, we, we uh, took all these people to this little alley behind our office yeah. and, and practiced accordion. We, we did. We, and- we, we folded <laughs> and lit and watched. It was a lot of fun. Do you have to, did you, first of all, just for everybody, the PRB is the Publication Review Board. So anybody who works at the CIA Anything you write into perpetuity, essentially, you send to the CIA and you wait for them to say yes or no. I was going to ask you, did every episode have to go through the PRB? Yeah. Yeah, everyone. Did Were they good about it and just the turnaround? Because I know TV, sometimes it's, it's they were, hard. They were really great. Really great. You know, they have a sort of set time that they say, I can't remember if it's a month or something like that, or five, six weeks, whatever they say they usually need. And I tried to really get them stuff yeah. ahead of time, but ultimately there was no way to get them scripts that far ahead of time and they still would always turn around and sometimes if a script's coming really late i'd say i'm so sorry but is there any way you could expedite this and they would get it back sometimes that same day you know it's funny because i get nervous when i would send something in the beginning and it's a little like mother may i and i felt like i was you know very ass kissy thank you so much if you can get it back to me i'd so appreciate it (laughs) xoxo but they were really good i said you know i had some deadlines and i said is there any possible kind of little sort of way you can turn around? And they were actually really. I love that you XOXO'd the PRB. I, I, that's that, awesome. That's amazing. See, I had a whole different neurotic relationship with the PRB because I, of course, I, I never was a CIA 
employee. I've signed no agreements, but anything I wrote with Joe would go in yeah. to the PRB. And But what I am is an anxious writer. So <laughs> I spent all these seasons just kind of thinking, do they like it? <laughs> Which obviously is not what they're going to get back to you on, but you know uh, that was that, that was that was what made me anxious. It'd be well, great if they had one wing that was like the quality review board. That would be awesome. They'd I be mean, like, "Look, you know, we felt like Elizabeth could have really struggled more emotionally in this episode." Wouldn't it be good? They give you a review, you know, the last episode, but this episode was really great. I felt like it was a really tight one. That would, I always wondered when, because I would write things that were very lifestyle, like dating in the CIA, what they would think if they, you know, were reading something on drones and then they would get mine on. And if everybody's like, I'll read the one on dating. It's just much easier. Totally, I would assume. Yeah. Like, did you have the same person review every script? Because you don't know when no. you send it in. Yeah. No, it changed a lot. Well, at least who responded changed. I, okay. don't, I was never sure if the people responding had themselves reviewed the script or how that worked exactly. I was always curious because I would just – I've sent enough of it. I would just have the the, ad, the email addresses. I would put everybody down, and I'm sure that they were probably annoyed. Like, why is this girl sending this to all of us? Do we all need to know about her dating life? <laughs> but I just didn't know, and I was it was really curious to me. And just so everyone knows, I, I know Joan Joel from – how everybody knows people now, social media. <laughs> we all connected on Twitter. And I've always been a fan. And I remember a while back, uh, Joe reached out and said, hey, um, why don't you, do you mind talking about some of the hair and makeup stuff? And I have a question. So I did, and they were lovely. I gave a couple of notes, and I saw the notes in the script, and I have no idea if it's because of me. I'd like to think it is. Probably. <laughs> but there was a great part where you showed them Elizabeth putting on her wig and having a wig cap on. Do you remember what I'm talking about? You had a couple episodes where you really showed the disguise meaning something, and you showed them having to put it on, and it yeah. and it had weight. It wasn't just some fluffy thing that someone had to wear. It it really served a purpose and propelled story. I mean, I think we've been getting a lot of feedback about you know how do they do this stuff? What when do they do it? Where do they do it? How do they change clothes? Where do they keep all their clothes? Where do they keep all their disguises? And we thought let's let's show that if we can. You know, we had sort of. We liked not showing it, too, but then we, th we thought if we could find the right way to do it. Um, I don't know if they knew to do a wig cap because of you or not. I don't know. I, wasn't, I don't remember that discussion, but probably. I mean, Mike, if you told me to use a wig cap and there's a wig cap, I would guess that's how it got yes. there. Yes. <laughs> I got so excited. Yeah. The other thing I remember about showing the on and off of the disguises is it, those became really great character moment opportunities because it, to see what it would take for Elizabeth to put on the disguise that she was going to use – after you'd established the emotional relationship she had unwillingly been pulled into with somebody, there's a, there's a whole world of emotion you can explore in that scene. There was also, remember, a really ongoing, like years ongoing discussion between us and the actors and the hair and makeup department about like the clips that Clark used when he had the Martha wig on. And yes. How did that stay on? And a lot of people were calling in or writing and saying, this is ridiculous. How would that stay on? And I think we talked to you about we that too. You did. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and finally, finally, I, when he took off his... His wig in front of we made sure that she, he removed a lot of hair clips. There was a lot. That and came she off. said to him, she blew, she blew his cover and said, "Look, I know." Didn't she say something like, "I know you're wearing a toupee. It's okay. Yes. Like chill, yes. chill yeah. out. I'm I'm not." But I did talk to them about it because I actually said because they said, "You know how realistic is it?" And I admitted that I dated a guy who wore a toupee and I didn't know. But he made up a whole story and said, I have a very – I should have known, especially since I worked at the CIA. But he said, I have a very sensitive scalp, so you can't touch my head. And I was being very <laughs> – <laughs> Oh, my God. That's brilliant. 
And I'm being a nice Midwest girl. I was I didn't want to touch his head, but he's like, he's very, very sensitive. And so finally, being a CIA officer, I kind of blew him on his cover because there's two days a week we wouldn't see each other. And I kept saying, why are we not seeing each other on Mondays and Tuesdays? And I was convinced he was a drug dealer because that was the only other yeah. option. And so finally, I basically interrogated him, and he admitted that he wore a toupee and had to get it serviced. Every Monday and Tuesday? I don't buy that story either. Well, you listen, 48 well, hours to service your toupee? He was also well, a professional killer. He was, also, <laughs> he was a murderer. And a drug dealer. He was yeah. a murderer and a drug dealer. He would drive down to Little Puente, if you know California, which is kind of far from the L.A. area, and he would give it to this woman. She would, like do her thing with it, and then he would come down on Tuesdays and pick it up. And so those are the two days we didn't ah, see each other. That's great. That should, first of all, she should put in her advertisements that he fooled you. Totally that's fooled like... me. Well, and I couldn't get super close, and it was all these rules. But so when we were talking about it for the show, I thought, I can't say it's totally not realistic. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't say that because I'd be a hypocrite. Let me so you're question. saying you most related to Martha of all the characters. Of all the characters. <laughs> Did you all realize she was going to be as popular as she became? Uh, well, I, I would say for me, I don't think we realized she would be as popular as she became because I don't think we ever thought in terms of popularity, but we knew she was going to be as important as she was from early on. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think we knew there was going to be literally a whole movement of poor Martha. Oh. And like, you know, that, but... I don't think we were surprised either. There was something – it was such a unique character and as you know, comes from not that specific character but the idea of these guys marrying people comes from history. We didn't make that up. Yeah. It's, I, it can't was, make that up. <laughs> you make a lot. Did you have a favorite disguise before I move on from the disguise topic? Oh, they're thinking. I mean I loved the uh, – was it season one or two when they uh, – when, when uh, Philip busted in in that – I think he was playing a defense department uh, – uh, security officer, and uh, that was pretty good. And Elizabeth was having a threesome, was it? She was. Yeah, she his, was. his disguise in that to me, I just was so in love with. He literally looked so much like a <laughs> version of what he was trying to be. Do you have a favorite? I I I, I love all our babies. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a parental answer. I can't pick my favorite. <laughs> and I know everyone has asked you this, but I'm going to just ask you because I would be remiss. Did you obviously? With how everything's going on in the world, did you realize how relevant your show would be? I mean, no. I would say the, op- the <laughs> opposite. Mean, What's the opposite I mean, of realizing? I mean, did you think? We don't even think it is relevant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because I remember people kind of giving shit to the show, like, oh, Russians, that really couldn't happen. And then a year later, Anna Chapman happened. And then all, you know, now we have Maria Butina and all these other things. And yeah, I mean, all that stuff, you know, we read the history and knew the politics so that we knew that stuff was real and and no one ever made any real case that it had ended but you know in terms of its political rele- relevance the show was really designed to take to be about a previous time when these two countries <laughs> were at their throats and be more easy to sort of digest relate to the characters understand and feel because we weren't in that time anymore so it's kind of political relevance that it, that the international relations between the two countries whipped up into something so negative again was was we didn't like that. Were you always Joel? Were you always interested in espionage? Or I know you've worked on a couple shows that were in that genre. Was it always something that you wanted to kind of dive into and and swim in that pool? No, espionage per se is not a particular interest. But I'm also not interested in genre per se or 
arenas per se. It's always about characters for me and about what crises the characters find themselves in and boy what what Joe created here in terms of uh in terms of these characters and the problem they found themselves in was was pretty rich and fun to explore. I was going to say it's it was so it you know I think what everyone loved is that we rooted for them and it was such a surprise. The the moment we wrapped the show uh, they opened a bottle of champagne and raised a glass and Matthew Reese said he, he was very surprised because that day he had been told that uh, the characters were spies. And he, <laughs> he, he said he had been playing the whole thing like they were travel agents. <laughs> How fun was the – when you taught them line dancing, when you taught his character, was that just – Well, thank God I didn't teach him line dancing. Joe, you could have taught him line dancing, but – I'm a big country music fan, but I, I've only been line dancing once. So I, I not only could not teach him line dancing, but we weren't there. That was but amazing. But we were told that they had a – don't you remember? They said they, that was they, a really was a fun day. day. Yeah. A really fun day. It was, it was pretty delightful yeah. to see that character because you saw him love it and yeah. fight against that love. It was – I thought it was really just such a beautiful little moment. What was better for you watching – Philip line dance or watching Stavos? Line dance. <laughs> <laughs> that was Stavos is pretty great. It's pretty amazing. Did I had a question when you were talking about tradecraft? Did you teach them any other any of the cast any other tradecraft as well? We went out before we shot the pilot. We went out and kind of walked the streets, and I you know talked to them about surveillance detection and. And and to the end of the show, they would sort of laugh about that and how they felt they were going to get hit by a car. <laughs> I did during training. You got hit by a car? No, but I thought I was oh. <laughs> all the time. I learned to read a map at the CIA. Oh, wow. I was very young, and it was yeah. before we had ways. But yes, were were they intrigued? Was your cast intrigued to learn all the tradecraft? And was it fun for you to kind of go back to that world? I mean, it's an interesting question. I don't know. I, I think they thought it was fun. I mean, it, we didn't, you know, it did, it, not, it did not take over their time okay. or their show. It was sort of like a few little things here and there. But I think they, they thought it was enjoyable. I had mixed feelings about it in a way because almost like emotionally, I'd really left that behind. Yeah. Really. And it's such a mindset and such a part of who you are. And and I literally, after after getting back into the show, occasionally found myself looking in my rearview mirror and then doing the <laughs> ridiculously. But uh, I, I wasn't I wasn't thrilled to go back to it. It's interesting. It takes I still have moments or especially if I'm talking to my friends who are still at the agency or in the bureau where after I've spent a long time with them, I have those moments where I get a little paranoid and I worry about where I throw away my trash because <laughs> at the agency you have a burn bag where you throw classified trash away and i think can i put my grocery list should i be shredding it and you you get a little you get a little in your head to and this I, day i rip my stuff in half before putting it in the not a burn bag not a burn bag because in half would be so hard to reconstitute well that right the fact that they asked you to do that before putting it in a bag in, that was going to be incinerated, incinerated made no sense <laughs> but you know me i never claimed much of this made sense <laughs> They literally have a a chute, so you throw away your trash, and then you open up a chute, and you throw away a bag into an incinerator. And how they would haze new employees at the agency, they would. You always did they. I don't know if they did this when you were there, but you'd open up the chute, and they say, "Oh, if you're new, when you throw your chute down the trash, you have to yell, burn bag coming." <laughs> so you'd see all these new, like wide-eyed CIA employees, and they would take their burn bag down the chute, and you just hear them yell. Burn bag coming! <laughs> Which I thought was amazing. And I asked him, I said, what do you think is down there? And one person said, I don't know. I thought maybe there's a man with coal. And I said, oh, sweet Jesus. No. I was like, come here, sweetie. We're going we're gonna to talk. Um, 
have people asked you about doing a reunion episode a la Gilmore Girls like five years later on Netflix or doing something like that or a movie? Is there anything you guys would ever do? Please say yes. No, I we want it back. It was a it was such a satisfying ending, but I was angry that it ended. You if you, if you story's have a good over. End, yeah, the story's yeah. over. If you have a good ending, you can't go back. You might mess it up. It stories they're still living. Paige could have her spinoff. What's she gonna do in her spinoff? Drink be vodka? Sp- and be a spy. Well, she's basically burned. Yeah. How's she gonna be a spy? What about her brother? <laughs> I think he's got the same problem. He's gonna be a professional hard. hockey player. Well, don't you want to see, like Maybe she's not. Well, she, you know, she's earned. Well, isn't there anything? I want to see what their life is like in Russia. Maybe they go get stationed somewhere else because they were so good. I'd say the one, the good, the good argument for a, uh, for, we, we talked about that, um, you know, eventually when Glossnost comes and, and Philip starts like a self help channel, <laughs> we thought it'd be really funny for Martha, like, to be just have a bowl of soup. And she's watching TV, and suddenly she sees Philip Jennings doing like Tony <laughs> Robbins on, on Moscow, exactly on Moscow television. He's got his little mic, yeah. his little Time Life microphone on stage, having that'd, people walk that, on cold. That would almost be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> We're not, it's not a like episode; it's a scene. It's a scene. Well, that's how it starts. Spin off you know. scene. Yeah, and Martha just <laughs> she just stands there with her spoon, just watching. Yeah. <laughs> Was it hard to say goodbye, or were you prepared? Because I knew you knew two years before, but was – could you have done another year? Or do you think it It felt like it was – the time was right? Well, we didn't have another year of story. Okay. So, it, so, that, so that we couldn't do. And it was hard to say goodbye because I think we all knew that we could never assemble such a remarkable group of wonderful people to work with again in the same way. And – that that was really, really, I think, of all of the blessings of the experience for me was the the blessing of working with those incredible people. So why'd you kill off Nina then? She did that to herself, I think. <laughs> yeah, we gave her, I don't even know how you can blame us. We gave her every chance. You literally, when she, that was a brutal, brutal death. You know, that's historical too. You know, our consultant, Sergei Kostin, uh, who lives in Russia and wrote a great book about a spy uh, whose codename was Farewell. I can't remember his real name right now, but he was an important spy for uh, the French. He actually spied oh. for Gave him a lot of economic stuff uh, against the KGB. And uh, when he was caught, he was executed just like that. And Sergei oh. did a lot of research to find out exactly how they did it, which, as you can imagine, nobody knew. No. I mean, that was really very few people understood how that stuff worked. We took it beat for beat. We took it out of his book. And then the really interesting thing about it was that there was this great effort made not to cause emotional suffering. So, in other words, a person didn't know they were going to be executed until half a second before the gun went off. And that was considered and uh, is humane. humane. Yeah. That's, but when his codename was Farewell? Yeah. Um, what a metaphor. Not even <laughs> subtle. Right. <laughs> we give me the codename Farewell. It's yeah. not going to end well. <laughs> no. I'm so sorry. I never thought about that. It is a little odd. It's a little on the nose. Yeah, it's a little on the it's nose. It's just a little. So your codename is Good Luck Sucker. <laughs> it's not going to well, end well. The irony is, as I recall that story, he worked pretty hard to get himself caught. Yeah, that was true. Did he? Was there just a lot of bad tradecraft? 
his I... trade craft was brilliant. It was interesting because he worked for the KGB. He figured out how to keep them from finding him ah. inside Moscow, which no Westerner knew how to do no. it. And really surprising stuff. Like he, he had his meetings with his handlers pretty much in the open. Which you would never, <laughs> you know, ever, you'd ever think do. You've got to like really do the opposite. But he knew where they did and didn't patrol. You know, he knew what kind of places they did and didn't look for people. And, and he realized that when you tried to be covert, there were too many things that tipped them off. So he didn't really try. But the way he got himself caught was really because he was drinker and he was drunk and he had affairs and, and he essentially almost murdered an ex-girlfriend. And, and then he talked it. to his cellmate. I mean, he just, yeah, he blew it. Yeah. It, a friend of a friend of mine who was at the agency speaking about being covert, like they're very onto the at the time of KGB, they were always on every they're on your ass if you're over there. And she got so annoyed that they were always up on her ass that she collected all of her soda cans for like two weeks. And she went driving around Moscow in her car and threw soda cans out the window because she knew that the KGB would stop. They'd pick up the cans thinking it was a signal or thinking it was a drop. And she just did it to annoy the shit out of them because she was so annoyed ah. and so over it. And so she did it for hours all around the city and came back and told her boss, the COS, and said, I just have to tell you what I did. And he said, I thank you for telling me you're going to have to live with the repercussions of this. And she said, I know. And what were the repercussions? They slashed her tires, put dog shit underneath the handles of her car and put dog shit in her house, in her apartment. I asked her, I said, was it worth it? She said, absolutely, it was worth it. <laughs> and I said, well, you know what? Then it's great. I love the fact <laughs> that she went into it going, I just want to screw with them. I thought, well, that's brave. I have to ask you a question that I literally, I think I told you all before the podcast started. I said, I asked a bunch of folks on the Twitterverse. I said, what are your questions for Joe and Joel? It, send them to me. And I thought I was the only person who had a question about Renee. Literally so many questions about Renee. Go. What was her deal? <laughs> Go. Well, stop. No, tell <laughs> well, me what I was, I, what I was the intent. At this point, we can just go ahead and state that she and Stan uh -huh. are married. <laughs> okay, that wasn't fun. <laughs> that was not fun at all. Was your intent, your intent the whole time was to keep it on that line? Yes. In your mind, did you think she was a, did you think she was legit or did you think she was a spy? I'll say what's in our minds at this point is irrelevant. And I don't I really I don't mean to be coy about that but the truth is as soon as the final episode aired anything we think about it ceases to be more important than anything anybody else thinks about it. But what do you think? Well cuz I my when Stan let them go my thought was you know what happens to him and is he going to get screwed again? Not screwed but in the sense that No. Every I he was like the man of bad luck. I always you know, I just I always wanted to hug him and I always stand it's okay. I met him once, by the way, and he was lovely. Um he is. He's super lovely and I saw him randomly in LA and I said, I work for the CIA and I think he thought I was crazy because I literally said it like that. I was like, I work for the CIA. You know, that's nothing. People used to people used to attack him on the street and in the subway. He you know, why are you treating Nina that way? <laughs> <laughs> You're married. Don't step out on your wife. Sandra's nice. What's wrong with you? And he would he would come into us and say it was it was a hard day on the west side. <laughs> Does that happen to every actor who know. plays a philanderer? I, I mean, that would be like half the characters on TV. People were really ticked off at Stan Beeman. And what was great too is, you know, Elizabeth would kill somebody. They'd poison a child, and then they were angry with Stan <laughs> for having a little, a little little affair. Elizabeth 
They literally chopped up a body and put it in a piece of luggage. Hey. Hey. They didn't chop it up. They folded it up. Oh, I thought, well, there's one they chopped and one they folded. The chopped person was already dead. Okay, but the the folded folded person was dead, too. too. Yeah. But they had killed the folded person. They didn't kill the chopped person. That's true. I love it. like a cooking show. No, they didn't kill the folded person. Yeah, they... Uh, No. Was he already dead? When they put him in the luggage? No, her. Her. uh, Her. She... she, No, uh, Yusuf... uh, Oh right! The the, the uh, right. what's his name killed her. Right, it was their fault, but they well, didn't do it. You know, Philip should have come into the room sooner. Yeah. But you know, again, I love <laughs> that you refer to it as a folded person, like the person's origami. <laughs> we made her into a swan. We used an actor, a contortionist, a stunt person, special effects, and a mannequin. How long did it take? All day. All day. I think there was three days of shooting on that. Oh, my God. Was it three days? We had to keep going back and reshooting. Remember? We had to keep going back. Oh, lots of reshoots on the suitcase. Can I ask you a really gross question, too? Mm -hmm. I just remember in some of those scenes, and I think it was that one in particular, the noise of bones. Mm. Well, we did that in post, and that was like... What is that? How do you get that noise? What is it? So there are are artists called Foley Foley artists, and they're responsible for that. And essentially, you don't want to know. Okay. You don't want to know. You just want to show up on the but they on the stage when you and, show up on the stage, they they don't ever have to create a sound. They've got it right there. No, library is no, so, well, isn't, no, don't they have a vast sounds. library and they look up? Yeah, but bones cracking. Well, Somebody they, created it at some point. I understand, but they're yeah, not. They'll, they'll sometimes create new sounds. Folded back, folded body cracking yeah. in well, luggage. Bones cracking. They had. They plenty. probably have plenty <laughs> of alternatives. <laughs> Which are the scenes that people ask you about the most? Because there's so many very visceral scenes from the tooth pulling. And, to the body and all which are the scenes that you get asked about mm. it's starting to fade a little bit <laughs> oh the memories they, they're out of sight out of mind yeah, i just don't feel like we got asked about scenes in particular so mm-hmm. much we got asked about characters and we got asked about you know storylines people, talk, people talked about scenes yeah, yeah. they don't they have ask questions about, about okay yeah. they'll they'll i yeah. mean they'll talk about like people will talk about the train platform that's interesting because I had very scenes that were very specific that I thought, oh, that was really harsh. Even in the beginning when Elizabeth just beats the crap out of Martha and all of that. And I just thought that dynamic was amazing. Well, for sure. But what are you going to ask us? Why were you so harsh? Yeah. Why were you? <laughs> like, how did that come into your brain? Like, it was such a care. Well, obviously, it was a character defining moment. Like, that was so into the beginning where you you were just like, oh, she's just a badass. But well, she was I, upset. Yeah. What was that? What's the line in that scene that's so great? Um your, something your face. Something your stu- shut your face, you stupid bitch. I think <laughs> something it was, it was more artful than that. I hope it was more artful than that. I want to. Let's not go check. <laughs> let's assume. Let's just imagine that it was better than that, and and, and, and move on. Would you ever do? Show me your face. No, no it wasn't. Why? Show me your face. <laughs> yeah, she was pounding or something. It was pretty amazing. Right. Was was it free? Did they? Oh, was it show them your face? Maybe I think so. <laughs> <laughs> show them. <laughs> Uh, good times. Uh, do people ask you all the time if you'd ever do another spy show again or a political show? Is that of any interest or do you feel like you've hit that genre? Only because right now, current politically, it seems very uh, very good for the drama. It seems yeah, like yeah. something someone's going to do eventually. I think we're ready to do something other than spies. But I think a lot of our – I wouldn't be surprised if almost any show we did has some connection to – at least what's happening in the world politically, because that's great fuel for human beings. Would you ever write the miniseries of what's going on now? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> that I'm was glad a you think snort. it's a mini series. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very long. It's like the bridge over the river Kwai, but keeps going on and on and on let's, and on. Let's wait for the happy ending first. And then would you do it? Do you ever look at things in the news as writers and as creators and think this is who I would cast or this is who would play it or this is how I would rather? Well, obviously, rather turn it in a different way. But do you ever think about things like that theatrically, or do you just kind of put your hands in your face and go, "Oh my God, I couldn't write this. It's too crazy." I don't I try don't to cast to the think world that what much so much. Yeah. Oh, I just heard a motorcycle. Because I always, and maybe it's because I'm not in that world, but I think I'm like, oh, who would play Hope Hicks? Okay, Anne Hathaway. I could see her as yeah. a as a Hope Hicks. Okay, who's Kellyanne? But well, it's normal. They do that in Hollywood. I remember when I was first pitching The Americans, and people would say, so who do you picture as Philip? Who do you picture as Elizabeth? And I literally was always like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think the more interesting question is, who would you have played yourself? <laughs> uh, hmm. Have you heard a lot from people? You were saying that you were worried about the reaction yeah. from the intelligence community. And do you still have friends who work at the agency? Yeah. Did they ever say anything to you or ask specific questions like, hey, why don't you do this? Or why didn't why did you do that? Or do you ever get any of those kind no, of questions? It was actually all I ever really got was really, really gratifying compliments, which I which I appreciated. It was really nice. And did was there ever talk of a musical theater um, episode of of the Americans? Oh, Only boy. every day. <laughs> I think that's why Fosse Verdon was just inevitable. Because after six seasons of Joe saying we're not doing a musical episode. <laughs> and I would say I'm sort of kind of almost a little bit joking. Because <laughs> that would have been a dream. And for anybody who's Right? Know, right? Come on. I literally would have been a dream. I know. I joke about it to this day, but I'm not joking that I want to see it on Broadway and espionage theme musical. Well, you know what I think? Is a as opposed to that, you know what I think is a good idea. Wait is, a minute, are you saying that's not a bad yes, idea? No, I'm saying that's a bad idea. Okay. No offense, but I really think that there could be a great play. Like there really aren't espionage plays for some reason. Theater doesn't go into that genre, and it's and it seems like it would be very rich for a stage play. I think it'd be hard to do though, don't you? I, only because I think part of the espionage allure that when you're watching, like when you're watching the Americans, it's seeing the tradecraft and seeing it so up close and seeing that minutia. I I don't know if it would be. Hard to play. Well, you just make the whole thing about a recruitment or something like okay. that. Which takes a lot longer than people realize. And which <laughs> No, and I was impressed that you would see that, even with Martha, how long that took until it was official. And I thought that gave it a lot of gravitas because in movies and TV shows, you'd see somebody get recruited. Hey, you want to work for the CIA? And then um, people think it just happens overnight. And it's a long, long, long process. But yeah, I guess that could be. Could they could they have a big tap number at the end? <laughs> I, I think that's you're saying no. Well, maybe if the recruit is a, some kind of musician or dancer. Okay, if you throw me a bone, I'll take it. That's okay. <laughs> the I got a lot of questions about the garage scene, and I'm sure you had questions about that as well. How long did it take you to figure out how you wanted that to end? How that relationship was going to end, or did you know that that was because it, it, it's such a messy relationship? Well, I'd say we we knew what the end of that relationship was going to be for a long time. And I think we knew generally what that scene was going to be for a long time before we wrote it. And then we rewrote that scene a lot, a lot of rewriting. And it took one day to film that scene. So that that, that was one full day of production just to get that scene, which is 
given that it was a very long scene, it was a it really was, long uh, scene. That that was actually pretty. They moved pretty swiftly on that. Um, but it was a lot of a lot of a lot of rewriting of something that we had had in mind for a long time. Did yeah, you I think we struggled with it in a way. Like other things, I, I can think of some other things that we rewrote a lot, although probably never as much as that. But this one had like stages where we'd like hit a wall, wonder if we were ever going to get it, think we weren't going to get it, restructure the whole thing, start over. It was it was an experience. There, were, <laughs> there was even a chunk of it that we had structured differently in the script and then we changed it in the script and then in editing we went back and restructured <laughs> it back to what we had originally written. Right. Was there any That's alternate funny. endings or I mean was anybody going to get killed or was it always that Stan was going to let them go? In I mean, some we, way or we, another. In in breaking the story we thought about alternatives, but we once we it was not that hard to land on this okay. and we never wavered. Was it with Paige jumping out of the train? Was that always going to happen as well? I think that well, more was in stages, too. Yeah, but she was always going to... Uh, I think she was... <clears throat> I think there was a long period where we knew she was going to not join them, and then there was a lot of work on whether it was an airport, whether it was uh, they were in a car crossing, whether they were on foot, or, or whether they were in a train. And train was very challenging cinematically. Why? Uh, because trains are slow to move, they're hard to rent, and they're <laughs> and because they're slow to move, they're impossible to reset. And one thing you want to do when you're making a TV show is get multiple options, got uh, it, and and multiple coverage. So that, for example, that incredible moment of Elizabeth realizing that Paige is gone, uh, Carrie gave us in one take. That was the most heart wrenching. That moment was heart wrenching. It. It was so it was hard to watch. That's amazing, but you you knew. I felt like the show had built up to that. Even though I think as an audience member, we didn't want it to happen. We kind of wanted her to go and be with the family, but then we got why she didn't. I thought it, you all did such a great job of creating her as a very independent, strong-willed woman. So it made sense. But I so I was curious if there was ever a point you thought maybe she'd go home with her mom and dad. Yeah, I mean, as I as I remember it, we thought at some point, you know, we thought initially either the parents will go, the parents will take one, both kids back, the parents will take one kid back, which kid will they take back? We went through a lot of that, and I, to me, when we finally landed on, I think we even had a version of the written script where one of them went back, and we finally landed on both of them stay, I think that's kind of when the whole finale kind of congealed and came together. And then we got literally the visual piece of it of her getting off a train and then I, I just think we had a feeling that it was going to work. How does and the it... music choice didn't happen until we had shot the episode. I literally was just about to ask, I felt like music was another character in the show. And it always was, you did, did a couple different David Bowie songs that I, mm -hmm. I remember having and I remember thinking, those are such beautiful choices. Was it always a thought for? I know that you come, you come from a world of, world of music, and I know that so. But I know if that was always a conscious choice to always have that in there, or musical theater rather. Uh, you mean that that, cute, always, that uh, song? That song, and then some of the other songs I felt were very specific and chosen either ironically or to play against. Right. Well, we 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 always were very careful about our musical choices 
mostly they were made during the editing process, I'd say with the exception of Yaz. I don't think there was anything else that we knew going in yeah. uh, that we were going to use. And uh, we would often surprise ourselves. Often the thing you thought would work best just was too obvious or uh, undercut the scene. And uh, then sometimes you'd hear something and immediately know, and other times you'd listen to dozens and dozens of dozens of songs. For, fortunately, songs of that era were great to listen to, so it wasn't a painful process, although it was a long one. You could get a little painful sometimes. But there were, but, and there were certain artists who we returned to, David Bowie, Leonard uh, Cohen, Leonard Cohen um, Peter Gabriel, and, uh, yeah. Was it interesting for you to go back to the 80s and to visit the clothes and that whole world? Go, go so back? much fun. Yeah, go back. What, do you, what do you mean? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I know you weren't born yet, so it was brand new. That's what I tell people all the someone, time. Someone at one point in an interview asked us uh, what research we did. <laughs> Joe, Joe said, I believed uh, it. Memory? <laughs> <laughs> We both, we, I think one of the fun things, among the many things that bonded us early on as we were working together was that although we grew up in different cities, we grew up in exactly the same era. And so if you remember being, you know, freshman in high school and seeing your friend have their handheld football game confiscated, then <laughs> you know you've got to write that into the show. But it was It was like an ongoing... Through the whole series, it was an ongoing kind of unpleasant surprise how many people felt that the 80s were like an era, a past era, like so long ago. I was like, <laughs> really? I just, nothing made me feel old like that. When people say that, I always literally want to punch them in the face. I'm like, I'm going to have to punch you right now. And then I say, I get it because I wasn't born yet. And I'm sticking to that story <laughs> just so you know. But I know I, I think we all loved just seeing even the clothes and the shoulder pads and the different colors. It was so fun and it was I felt it was so spot on and it just helped create that world because I know that it can go either way when you see it. But it was so grounded in that. I also loved how you used and this is, has nothing to do with it. But I was thinking about the phones that you. Um, but whenever she would answer the phone, they had the bona fides and they I always thought that was a lovely a little spy touch to it as well. Could you talk a little bit about some of that and using the signals and some of the tradecraft that you did use that was fun to use? I mean, it was really, that's an interesting example because there was a lot of stuff, uh, you know, when you say bona fides, that's a, a way of sort of establishing your bona fides, establishing that you are who you say you are. So if you have a little what's called a parole where you say some sentence and the person says it back, then you can trust each other. But the key is, it can't sound like you're doing a parole <laughs> because then if anybody hears you, they'll know you're spies. So it has to be really ordinary stuff. The problem with that that we – in the show, I don't know if it was a problem, but I always thought it was interesting, was that if you succeed at making it sound normal, the audience isn't necessarily going to have any idea it. what it is. So you know, we, our, we always had the same solution to that, which is you just do what's true and ultimately it doesn't really matter if people get it. You know, some will, some won't. Some will get it unconsciously or half-consciously. 
Um, but we always tried to just do it as, as realistically as, as possible. I got in trouble at the farm because you sometimes practice with these things. And my bona fides and pro were always very dramatic. It was, Barbara Streisand is the best in the world. And someone <laughs> would have to say something. I, yes, I agree with you completely. Oh, my God. You should have been there with me. <laughs> Why did you not go to the farm with me? We would have had the best time. If I had known that they accepted musical theater nerds in the CIA, <laughs> believe I, me, I'd be director by now. I had no idea. <laughs> that would have been amazing. <laughs> I, li- I To be fair, I had no idea they accepted musical theater nerds until I was there. <laughs> and P.S., I didn't know you went to Stage Door Manor. Of course. That's the nerdiest of all nerdy amazingness of musical theaterness. <laughs> it's pretty great. You know, I, uh, yeah, well, you know, I was, uh, I did play uh, the lead of Valentine White and Babes in Arms opposite Mary Stuart Masterson. Uh, so I'll pick up that who name remains for you. A, remains a, uh, a friend to this day. You know, it. it that was actually a really transformative place, and you, know, you joke about it being nerdy. I just—I literally just had lunch with my friend Mark Sachs, who's a casting director, uh, who whom I met there. And there's not just a community of people who met at Stage Door, but it was a place I went to because I loved magic. I had no interest in theater until I got there, and there was this guy who ran the place named Jack Romano, who said. You're, you're going to be in a play. He said in his. Uh, what did they have? Cuban why accent. would you go there? Because you like magic. They offered they. That year, they offered courses in magic, and I saw it in the back of the New York Times Sunday Magazine. Told my parents I wanted to go. I can't believe I didn't know this part of the story. Yeah, and 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 not only then did I start uh, doing plays there, uh, but it was this guy who said you can you can make a career telling stories. You can do this with your life if you want. So uh, stage door changed my life, changed the life of a lot of young people. How Please, was the no, magic I, program? I, yeah. Was the magic program good? Uh, the magic program wasn't bad. It was a lot of fun. You know, by the Wonderful way, wonderful guy there named Zavello was his stage name. <laughs> Sam Wishner was his real name, and he was a very generous guy, and he uh, taught us some good tricks. <laughs> but it was, but it was the acting teachers who uh, and the and the theater teachers who transformed but my life. It's an question because if you were running Stage Door Manor and you were sitting around, you're saying, "Okay, we have, as you say, the nerdiest of the nerdy programs in the world. And How can we make it more nerdy? I know we'll add a magic program. That's the only way. <laughs> That's right. And and just think, I went mainstream by going from magic <laughs> into musical theater. Here I am. And I say nerdy with total respect we all do. We all because do. that is who I am. Yes. Just Two to be former clear. CIA officers calling me a nerd. You know, I, I, I get it. You guys are cool. You were in the CIA. Uh, I get it. I, 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 I was in Babes in Arms. You guys were in the CIA. But I get it. I'm, gonna, I'm, <laughs> just, I'm fine. I'm going to just clarify that I've never been cool one day in my life. I wore an eye patch for a lazy eye. So I, like, you wore an like, eye patch for your disguise. No, I You were li- practicing disguise spy Eye patch is cool. No, not when you're in middle school. Yeah. There's nothing cool about that. <laughs> And I yeah, but I, I appreciate it. What were other... you were you were you in the CIA? I was in the CIA. Cool, that's cool. That is kind of cool. cool. It's a good first date story. Yeah, I did magic shows. You... <laughs> well, not at the same time she was in the CIA. CIA. That's true. Well, possibly. Possib- I don't know because I after after my kids were born, I bought back my act and I did it for a few years at their birthday parties. Do you now still do too, any? They're too old. Do you know that one of the high ups of the CIA is a magician, an amateur magician? It doesn't surprise me. John McLaughlin. I think I'm saying his name right. Oh my God! Did you just you just exposed his his secret skills? By the way, <laughs> the fact that he's in the CIA. CIA. I, only, you, I, I, I outed him. I only learned this very recently. Is it David Copperfield? He is, and he made the Statue of Liberty disappear. <laughs> Among the highlights, by the way, of the show for everyone was watching the Statue of Liberty disappear. But for us, was 
talking on the phone to David Copperfield, oh. who uh, shared the most amazing stories with us about the creation of that special that we used in season four. I love that because I remember what if I was born, I remember watching that with my family if that had happened and I was old enough to watch it. Yeah, me too. But it was amazing. Like seeing that, I just remember it, it brought back all the memories. That's really super cool. You know, I only uh, I never told you this before now, like I didn't tell you turning the show because I just learned it when I, I read this fantastic new book by uh, Tony and Jonah Mendez. And, and what it explains is that a huge amount of CIA tradecraft is based on magic. And they literally hired magicians to help them figure it out. I just, that makes it's not surprising once you think about it. Not surprising. It makes a lot of sense. And then what's interesting, it's, it's funny how conversation goes because this all started with us joking around about it. But the truth is, if you, you know, we're, here we are in the recording this in the comedy cellar. I think a lot of comedians came in to to comedy through magic. So many writers, so many actors, so many directors. There's a whole community of people who started through magic because, yes, you're a little bit on the outside and you're a little nerdy and you want to find a way to to express yourself. But that 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 gene, that passion to express yourself, you, you wind up doing magic and you're performing. And as soon as you're performing, you need a story to tell, and so you start to become a writer. And huh, I, I remember I would buy these magic tricks and they would come with the pattern and I would read the pattern that came with them and I would just think, I don't like this. Pattern. I don't like this pattern. <laughs> this I got to write a whole new story and then I'd write my story for whatever that trick was. <laughs> I love that it came with pattern. Yeah. yeah, they do. That's very Sondheim-y. That's, uh, that's amazing. It's it's very funny about the magic. It, it does have, I feel like a lot of musical theater kids though were into that as well. I do I do see the little... Overlap. Did you ever go to the Magic Castle in L.A.? I was a junior member. Are you kidding? <laughs> Who am I? Let me step back. I was JV for even asking. Have you been to the Magic Castle? No, Jeff? I've heard a lot about it, but I haven't been. You want to go next time we're in L.A.? No. Yeah, it's that's, pretty that doesn't great. surprise me. No, it's great. It's really, really, yeah, it really is. It's very special, I think, because it's very old school, and they treat it with such reverence. But you can do. There's an up close room where you see the up close mad. It's. I think it's really fun. All right, I'll go. I'm in. My husband asked my parents for permission to marry me at the Magic Castle. Oh. And I knew it was going to happen even because I'm kind of a ruiner. So I just stayed in the bathroom for 20 minutes just in case it was a difficult conversation. <laughs> and then finally I text. I said, hey, is everything okay? He's like, yeah, where are you? He thought he was trying to surprise me. But that's why I always like the Magic Castle because I remember that's where I stayed in the bathroom because I knew he was asking my parents for yeah, permission. That's pretty good. That's very nice. So, but it's also a very cool place. And I feel like there's a piano that doesn't you speak to. It's her name is Irma. And you go, hey, play Les Mis. And she'll play Les Mis for you. Pretty cool. You seem so unimpressed with this. <laughs> I've, I've heard great things about the Magic Castle. You're I've totally, heard anybody would like the Magic Castle. You're faking enthusiasm just to appease me. It's okay. <laughs> but I would go I know with him you. pretty well. He, he, he's, he's neither faking nor enthusiastic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, a couple last questions before we go. Someone asked me if they thought Henry would get a job in the CIA or State Department. We think those kids are blown. Like, you think Henry is even? Yeah. How's Henry going to get a security clearance? Yeah. But I feel like Henry, it wasn't his, his fault. His parents are. Would well, you give him a security clearance? Jared has a security clearance. Okay, today, maybe. <laughs> He's like Jared, but smarter. And can play hockey. Well, I'm making we'll see, a we'll see what happens. I'm making a compelling argument right here. <laughs> no. I don't think that's his interest anyway. No. I guess he's young. You never know, but. Are we to assume that Stan adopted him pretty much? 
we won't you won't get answers out of us about anything that that might happen. Oh, because there's going to be a sequel. Is that why? <laughs> <laughs> no, because we don't want to intrude on the experience of the audience. Do you realize? Literally, I have pages of questions that everyone was asking all about the endings. I've skipped half of them because I know you won't tell me. But if we don't answer, they can have any answer. You they can want. have any. That's answer. right. It was the big question, though, was Renee. Yeah. I you could do one of those um, one of those voice boards where you divide up all of our words and then people can play them in whatever order they want. Or they can get whatever. <gasps> Mental note, we'll be doing this. <laughs> That's what post is for, correct? Is yeah, there you go. Um, and I just wanted to say, because we talked about musical theater, you are one of the executive producers. Uh, Joel is one of the executive producers of Fosse Verdon right now on FX, which is the most delightful, amazing miniseries. Please that... tune in and sing along. <laughs> I do. All the time. And it was, it's just, it's wonderful. So everyone should watch that too. And do you have anything else? Because I feel like it's Hollywood and I should, anything else you guys want to plug or are excited about? No, we hope we will pretty soon, but not quite yet. Not ready to share it? No. Nobody listens. So it's, you can tell me. (laughs) (laughs) No? Okay. I tried. Well, I just want to say visit Deep State Radio Network and you can support everything that we're doing here, not just my show, but others. And if you become a member, you can have early access to all the podcasts, one-on-one newsmaker interviews, and so much more. And you can find my podcast on iTunes. And if you do, as I mentioned, rate it, rank it, say nice things about it. And you can find Joe and Joel on Twitter because that's where we're all found. And Joe is at Joe Weisberg and... Joel is at Joel underscore. You've got the underscore, which is kind of cool. Was there another Joel Fields? I have no idea why. Why do you have the underscore? <laughs> I don't know. That's, I don't, it, I don't, it was very I don't random. I don't know what to say about that. Okay. Because the underscores, I feel, are old school. A little. Well, <laughs> look at me. You're very young. And so that's why I was shocked. Um, it's Joel underscore Fields. And I am at CIA Spy Girl. I'm not one to say anything about any, any handles because mine's not subtle at all. And Maybe I, you should have an underscore. At, wait a minute, so at CIA underscore spy girl. I think spy underscore girl. CIA spy underscore girl. Okay. I think you should put the underscore after the G. What, after spy spy, guns or spy underscore girl. Spy yep. underscore girl. Exactly. I think you guys found your new series. <laughs> <laughs> yes? Who's going to play you? That's the only um, question. Who's going to play me? I think there's only one person who can play me. <laughs> Carrie's available. I, I'm pointing to myself. Oh. Good Lord. I'm not being subtle. You don't want to work those hours. I do want to work those hours to play me. I want to make sure she's played right. I thought you meant a series about underscores. Okay, that too. But it was about that. See, I by underscore girl. I think it'd be great. I thought we were going to talk about that. (laughs) Are you breaking some news? Thank you guys so much for joining. This was so much fun. I appreciate it so much. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.